to be found. She did not even so much as follow Ruth. She did not even so much as follow Ruth into the fields. She stayed home. Why? Because sometimes life is dark, debilitatingly dark. Sorrow and circumstance engulf you to the extent that you have nothing left to give. So for Naomi, husband is dead, oldest son is dead, youngest son is dead. Her daughters-in-law, one of whom sticks with her, is nice but useless economically. Her reputation is gone. She's the sellout who ditched and moved to Moab and is back in town and barely a shadow of her former self. Humiliation. So at the end of chapter 1, Naomi is saying, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter, because that's what I am. I'm a bitter woman. Not a pretty picture. And yet, and yet, God does not leave her. Chapter 2, Ruth wants to glean. Naomi says, fine, glean. I suspect Naomi spends the day sitting around depressed, although, of course, I can't prove that. Hours pass. Evening arrives. The sun sets. Ruth walks in, and she's carrying 30 pounds of barley. Naomi is shocked, confused. Where did you go? Where did you glean all this? Whose field did you go to that you would come home with 30 pounds of barley, which is certainly more than one hard day's work? Ruth's response, his name is Boaz. And I think that's, that's the moment for Naomi. Light breaks through. The hope that Naomi has been lacking for so long appears because Naomi knows something that Ruth doesn't know. What does Naomi remember? As soon as she hears the name Boaz, Naomi remembers the most important piece of information, which is that he's a redeemer. He can redeem us. So we're not talking about redemption from sin. We're not talking about eternal redemption that only God can provide. We're talking about physical economic redemption. Boaz is a relative, which means if he wants, he can redeem the family. Remember, in week one, we said Naomi must have just forgotten about Boaz. Or he's, he's so distant a relative that she just thought it was unrealistic, okay? And I argued that her despair encouraged that hopelessness, okay? So one way or another, he left her mind, but now he's here. And Naomi says in chapter 2, verse 20, the first positive thing we hear from her the entire book and the most important and controversial verse in the entire book when it comes to interpreting chapter 3, which is, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken, forsaken the living or the dead. So, you guys know what a dangling modifier is? Who is the... What, KT? I know you don't. I'm going to explain it. Don't worry. <laughs> Who is the last part of verse 20 referring to? How did you read it? May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. So is it Boaz's kindness that hasn't forsaken the living or the dead? Or is it God's kindness that hasn't forsaken the living or the dead? So, let me tell you, it could be either one. And commentators are more or less split about which one it is. So, good reminder to be a Berean about this and weigh what you read or what I'm going to argue is correct against your own study of the word, because interpretation matters. And in this case, the reason this particular verse is so important is because if you take this as a reference to Boaz, then it's easy to read what happens in chapter 3, which we will read, as Naomi trying to manipulate the situation to work out for her own physical good. 
it would mean she's still just focusing on earthly things and earthly deliverance. She has hope, not in God, but in Boaz. And she forces her hand, manipulates Ruth and Boaz into getting married, is even willing to risk their falling into sexual immorality for the chance at economic deliverance, which would lead you to conclude that this book is all about how God works in spite of the sinfulness of his people, which is, of course, true and taught elsewhere in Scripture. But it's not what's taught here. Because if you take the end of chapter 2, verse 20, as a reference to God, which I think you should, then instead of a me-first, earthly-minded, desperately manipulative Naomi seizing the chance to, to save the day for herself, we have a person who finally sees that while God took everything away from her, he never forgot her. When she'd given up, and willfully blinded herself to God's blessings in chapter 1, blessings like an awesome daughter-in-law and blessings like the end of a famine in her homeland, things that are clearly God's blessings, blinded herself to those. In spite of her doing that, God mercifully and sovereignly chooses to work in her life by using the everyday faithfulness of normal people like Ruth and Boaz. So to break through the darkness and give her undeserved hope, God does this. He's not responding to her faith, in other words. He doesn't wait for her to pray or anything like that. It's straight-up mercy. He's acting out of pure undeserved mercy. And by the end of chapter 2, Naomi sees this. That's what I'm arguing. I'm arguing when she hears Ruth say, Boaz, her faith is rekindled. The slightest bit of light breaks through her depression and slowly begins to fill her life with hope. So, as we read on into chapter 3, as we will in a moment, I said that a moment ago, we will in a moment, I want you to have in mind our main character, Naomi, a woman who has been beaten down, but who now hopefully accepts that the God who took her husband and her children and her future and her reputation is now working in her life to restore what was lost. And because of that hope, Naomi, I think, is going to start doing the next thing, which is what I'm arguing we should do. So we're going to continue developing what I believe is the message statement of the entire book, which you will hear so many times you will not be able to not think about it the next time you read Ruth, and hopefully every time after that, which is the point. God uses the everyday faithfulness of normal people to carry out his sovereign plans of redemption. The truth is founded upon the reality of God's sovereignty, as we saw in chapter 1. The truth compels us as believers to strive to simply do what's next and what's right, as we saw in chapter 2. And now we'll see that doing what's next and doing what's right can sometimes mean bravely seizing opportunities that God has put before us. So it's a little bit exciting, a little bit romantic, a lot weird. But another message we need to hear. So let's pray and then read Ruth 3. Father, once again, we ask for your special illuminating presence this morning. We ask that the Spirit who, who originally guided the writing of this book will help us to see the rich truths that are taught here. We ask that you would rid our minds of the distractions of our lives this morning, as difficult as that may be. We ask that you would honor 
our faithful commitment to your authority as revealed to us in the Bible, that you would be pleased that we strive to say no to the false teachings of the world and yes to the countercultural teachings of your word. Respond by blessing our time here this morning. Help us to be convicted, encouraged by your word, and I pray that anything untrue or unhelpful that I say would go in one ear and out the other. We trust you and you alone to use the word in our lives, and we lift up so many in our church body hurting from sickness, hurting from circumstance. Think of Ben and Megan especially as they continue to to sorrow through the loss they're experiencing, but others who have been touched by COVID or just flu or whatever that's that's keeping us apart this morning. Be with us as we uh, sit together under your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, Ruth 3. This is the exciting chapter. Are you ready for this? Yes. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But don't make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he'll tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You've made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether rich, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. He said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest but we'll settle the matter today. And really, what you should be saying now is, what in the world just happened? <laughs> Maybe like me, you have read this strange proposal story, which no doubt some of you have read at least once before, if not many more times. Perhaps you read it and have always thought, it must be cultural. The whole middle of the night thing and the whole uncovering his feet thing and the whole do what your mother-in-law tells you thing must just be the way that some people proposed back then. So far as we know, that is not the case. This is weird. Weird for us now? It was weird for Boaz back then. Weird for Ruth back then. We're actually going to, uh, so we're going to walk through this 
a little bit differently because so much of what we need to do is make sense of the weird things that are happening here. So we're going to read through the chapter again. It's not a terribly long chapter. And I'm going to, we're just going to walk through and I'm going to insert commentary as we go through, which will hopefully make more clear why what I think is going on here, uh, which are not genius Joel conclusions. They come from many commentators, and a lot of those commentators dis- disagree with me. So be a Berean about it. Be skeptical. Uh, let's kind of walk through the scene here, and after we walk through, I'll emphasize a main point or how this adds to our understanding of what the book is telling us. So I recommend having the verses in front of you and your fingers on the verse as we read, because I'm going to start and then say my own stuff and then keep going. So verse 1, then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, and at this point we remember that some time has passed between the good news of chapter 2 and what happens here. So the last verse of chapter 2, if you glance up at it, tells us that Ruth gleaned until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with Naomi that entire time. So This plan is not a knee-jerk response from Naomi. It's not like she heard about Boaz and the next day was like, go get him. Okay? Time has passed. Time has passed. She's thought about it. Keep in mind what I said about what I think is her her faith development in the situation. Okay? So, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? should Should I not seek rest? For you is an interesting callback to chapter 1, where Naomi tells Ruth and Orpah that they should seek rest, but where? Back home in Moab. Leave, go back home, and find rest in your house. Here, because she's seeing things more straight, she's she's got it flipped around the right way, and she's taking some responsibility for Ruth which is something she had not done earlier. More about responsibility later. Verse 2. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? Ruth already knew this. Ruth already knew Boaz was a relative because Naomi told her at the end of chapter 2. See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now, Naomi does not know that because she's a creeper. She knows this. Because it was that time of year, the same way we know that certain times of year farmers are busy or public accountants are busy in April or students are busy at the end of a semester. Yes. So Naomi's just saying he's a farmer. He's going to be threshing tonight. He's going to be at the the threshing floor. It's common knowledge that that's where he would be. People knew where Boaz's threshing floor was. So Naomi knows. Verse 3. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. Now, this is where things get interesting, okay? Because this is, this is where many commentators see Naomi as being sinfully manipulative. Why would Naomi want Ruth to get all cleaned up and dressed up is the question. And one possible answer is that she wants Boaz and Ruth to get married for her own benefit And one way to ensure that that happens is if they have sex tonight. It's dark. It's private. Naomi suspects Boaz likes Ruth. She suspects Ruth likes Boaz. So let's make Ruth as beautiful as possible and have her approach Boaz in a context that would make falling into sexual sin very easy. And then they'd be stuck, right? They'd have sex. They'd feel guilty. They'd get married out of obligation. And Naomi would be saved economically. So... That is a valid interpretation of 
what is going on. And it would not threaten the authenticity of the book. It would change the message of the book, but it wouldn't. In other words, these aren't liberal scholars trying to tell you the Bible's a lie, right? This is honest Christian scholars trying to figure out what's going on. It's a weird scene. Maybe that's what's going on. I don't think that's what's going on. First off, remember that that interpretation stems from chapter 20, verse 2. So chapter 20, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 20. The way you interpret that verse determines how you're going to read into everything that's happening in chapter 3. My view of chapter 2, verse 20 means that I'm looking at Naomi in a much more positive light. Now, that still leaves the problem of explaining what happens here in a good and reasonable way. Why would Naomi tell Ruth to dress up, look beautiful? Couple answers. First, I think we can just simply assume that she's telling Ruth to get dressed up for a special occasion. Naomi is telling her to propose. That's going to be abundantly clear, that this is a proposal. It's a special day, so don't wear... Don't wear the sweatpants and hoodie, okay, even though it's late at night. I don't think that's a stretch, okay? I don't think that's a stretch, even though it's kind of humorously common, right? Second, some commentators suspect that Ruth had been wearing clothes of mourning up until this point. This is a little bit more of a stretch, but I think there might be something to this. So consider that Ruth's husband has died within the past year which is possible given the timeline of the book. Maybe not, but it's possible. And Ruth is wearing, as would be somewhat customary of the time and culture, clothes that express her mourning. Okay, so perhaps then Naomi's telling her that it's it's time to put those clothes away and move on. It's time to look at the new things God is doing in your life. It's a new phase. And so dress up as you normally would. Okay, so regardless of that second one, I think it's perfectly reasonable to conclude Naomi's just saying, listen, it's an exciting thing. You're doing something bold. I think we're doing it in faith because the Lord has opened the door for us. You should get dressed up. Perhaps shedding the image of mourning has something to do with it. But keep in mind, too, it's not like she's getting dressed up immodestly. You understand? It's not like Ruth is going in a bikini to Boaz's threshing floor, right? If that were the case, then it would be much harder to justify why she would do that, right? The idea is just look nice, okay? Look nice. Now we keep reading. Don't make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. More on whether Boaz is drunk or not coming in future verses. Verses. Verse 4, when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, go and un- uncover his feet and lie down. More on that weird thing in a minute, too. And he will tell you what to do. That statement is a sign to me that Naomi is confident, not that Boaz will maybe give in to the temptation to have sex with Ruth, but the opposite. Naomi's confident that Boaz will know exactly what is going on, what Ruth is saying to him, and will act honorably, which we know that he does, okay? Spoiler alert about chapter 4. Verse 5, Ruth replies, all that you say I will do. Now, if you take Naomi as an evil, evil is an overstatement, as a selfish, manipulative person in this passage, you must also take, and this is really one of my biggest problems with that interpretation, you must also take Ruth to be a mindless pawn in Naomi's plan. So, I've already argued that Ruth is not a mindless pawn, that she thinks for herself and does what's next and does what's right. If that is the case, then if she suspected what she was being asked to do was sinful by Naomi, 
I think it's safe to say she would have stood up to Naomi or asked questions. Okay, she doesn't do that. She says, okay, I'll do it. It's far more likely to me that Ruth understands the plan of proposal to Boaz, what it means, and she is autonomously deciding that she's willing to do what Naomi suggests. Okay, that's key. So, verse 6, she went down to the threshing floor, did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her, and when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Now, is Boaz drunk? I don't think he is drunk. One, same reason. Use chapter 2 to conclude that Boaz is a really solid dude with integrity and read that into chapter 3, which is entirely fair interpretively. And the other reason is there's a really clear contextual reason why he would be really happy, as in just normal happy, not drunk happy. He's a farmer. There's been a famine in the land for who knows how many years. This year, the harvest is plentiful, which is wonderful news. So I think Boaz had a big dinner, ate and drank in a normal way, was satisfied in a normal way, and lay down to sleep after a long day of work with a fully satisfied tummy, like we do at the end of Thanksgiving Day. So if a plain common sense reading of the text works, then go with that. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Why uncover his feet? Because she needs to wake him up and cold feet wake people up. If the plain reading of the text works, go with that. I honestly think that's exactly what's going on. Note also that if Boaz was flat out plastered drunk, there's no way he would have woken up with cold feet, right? He would have been out. So many jokes I could make, but I'm deciding not to. Verse eight, at midnight, the man was startled, turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. So we don't know. We don't know when Ruth got there, right? We don't know how long she's been waiting, but midnight is not that far into the night. So he's probably waking up fairly quickly. He's surprised, as he should be, because this is weird and not normal, right? He doesn't wake up and say, oh, a cultural proposal. How lovely. It's not how it works. He says, who are you? Because it's dark and he's rubbing his eyes. She answers, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, here, that last phrase, there's a couple things to know. One, this is Ruth talking, not Naomi. Naomi did not tell her to say anything, right? She told her to go, uncover his feet, wait, and then he'll tell you what to do, right? So Ruth decides to say this. I think that's important to the autonomy piece. Two, it would have been 100% crystal clear to Boaz that Ruth is asking him to marry her. Question sometimes comes up. It's kind of opaque, kind of ambiguous, right? Like, why doesn't she just say, will you marry me? Okay, but it would be 100% clear. Okay, the reason being her words remind Boaz of what he said to her in chapter 2, verse 12, which is where he said, he, ta he had talked about how he had heard how awesome she is and the commitment she made to Naomi. And he said, a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, is what he told her a few months ago. That was, that was Boaz praying that God would take care of Ruth in response to the way that she had fully entrusted herself to God. So now Ruth is coming to Boaz and saying... In very clear terms, really, you answer your own prayer for me, please. Marry me, be the means by which 
God takes care of me. That's what she's saying. It's incredibly awesome and incredibly romantic, really, and cinematic. I love it. It's fantastic. Incredibly clear. Okay. Epic. Yes. Hey, more on that later. That's not a trap. It is epic. So, Boaz understands what she's saying, as we see in verse 10, because he says, he doesn't say, what do you mean? He says, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. Now, the daughter label is not a rejection, and it's not super weird. I mean, it's weird to us. He's simply emphasizing the age difference, which we mentioned earlier, which comes out here as we read on. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. So I think Boaz is saying, choosing me, he's older. I told you rabbinic tradition has him at 80 and Ruth at 40. Rabbinic tradition is like wrong 70% of the time about this stuff, okay? But it's kind of like, okay, we know he's older and that she's younger. It's a little bit out of the norm. I don't think, I don't think that, I don't think they're that far apart in age. If it is 40 years the age, the span of life has something to do with it. Okay, I'm saying too much about that. He's saying, despite my age, because of my character and because of what I will mean to you and your family, this last kindness, that is proposing to Boaz, is even more impressive than your well-known decision around town that you committed your life to taking care of your mother-in-law, which is the first kindness. So both are selfless acts. You understand? Which is not to say that Ruth is not attracted to Boaz. It just means to say that physical and emotional reasons is not at the very top of her priority list for who to marry. She's thinking of herself. She's thinking of Naomi. And Boaz, as a man of character, is willing to do this for her, to take part in it. It's interesting that they come together romantically, really around caring for somebody else entirely, right? So if someone came to you and said, I'd really like us to date, because it would be really good for my mom for some reason. And imagine, it's hard to imagine there'd be a good reason for that. Imagine there is, right? Because this is a good reason. She's trying to take care of her mother-in-law and herself, right? We understand it's uniquely selfless that they would both come together and say, yeah, we kind of have the hots for each other, but what's more important is the way that this is going to help Naomi and the family name. Ruth is right in her confidence about Boaz. Verse 11, And now, my daughter, don't fear. I will do for you all that you ask. Another sign that he understands what she was asking, because she, she doesn't really ask a question, but he gets it. For all my fellow townsmen know, you are a worthy woman. Boaz has the same solid priority list. Verse 12, And now it is true that I'm a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Then verse 13, Remain tonight which again, some people take to mean he's asking her to stay and have sex with him, but it does not mean that because of syntax. It's abundantly clear. There are two Hebrew words that could be used. One of them oftentimes does have sexual connotations. One of them does not ever, and it's the second one. It's not as ambiguous as it sounds to us. He's not inviting her to have sex. And in the morning, verse 13, if he will redeem you, Good. Let him do it. Another sign he cares more about Ruth and Naomi than getting Ruth for himself. If he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I promise I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So Boaz, as an absolute boss of a man, uh, shows he's committed to sexual purity despite a situation in which it would have been very easy to take advantage of Ruth. He's committed to doing what's right by offering the closer relative 
the opportunity to marry Ruth. We'll talk more about this relative marrying, saving them thing next week. And then we find out more awesome things about him. Verse 14, she lay at his feet until morning, arose before one could recognize another. It's still dark out, in other words. He said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So that first thing he said, he's saying to his workers. And then in verse 15, he's talking to Ruth, bring the garment you're wearing, hold it out. So she held it out. He measures out six measures of barley, puts it on her, sends her into the city. So three more reasons Boaz is an absolute boss of a man. He protects Ruth by not letting her walk home in the middle of the night, which would have been dangerous for her. When she came, still dangerous, later in the night means more dangerous. He protects her. Two, he protects her reputation by sending her home before the break of dawn so that the townspeople don't have any opportunity to gossip about her intentions in going or what they might have done while she was there. It would not have been that crazy for them to conclude those things, you understand. He understands that. He wants to protect her from that gossip. Three, he loads her up with another another generous amount of food to take home to Naomi, which is obviously, obviously. I think it's his way of communicating to Naomi, I get what you're saying, I get why you did this, and everything's going to be fine. Verse 16, when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, that is Naomi said, how did you fare, my daughter? She told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. He said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle, settle the matter today. So there's chapter three. Made it through. Now let me tie this into to the overall message of the book, or at least try to. What we see here are three people who are equally committed to faithfully doing the next thing and the right thing before God. So last chapter we had that, but we only had two people doing it, and one was sitting on the bench, right? Naomi's sitting on the bench in chapter two. Ruth and Boaz are doing the next thing and doing the right thing. In this chapter, Naomi's on board. So even more so than in chapter two, we get a picture of what it might look like for God to use people sovereignly who are willing to simply do what's next, okay? The question is, what about Naomi's plan, right? I mean, it, it would be easy to say Naomi's forcing things a little bit at the beginning of chapter three. I've said we shouldn't try to save the day or be epic or solve everyone's problems, but it kind of looks like that's what Naomi is doing. So I don't think that's what she's doing. Let me explain. The reason I don't think so is because there's a difference between trying to save the day and be epic and seizing opportunities that God has put before you. I think Naomi encouraging Ruth to propose to Boaz this way is Naomi doing the next thing and doing the right thing. But this has everything to do with responsibility, right? The question is, right, you all agree with what I just said. The question is, how can you tell the difference between trying to save the day and just seizing an opportunity the Lord has brought to you. And I think a, an overly simplistic answer is that it has everything to do with responsibility. So the problem with trying to be epic and save the day is not that there's anything inherently wrong with being epic and saving the day. God uses people in epic ways and will continue, continue to do so. We see examples of this all throughout scripture and all throughout church history. I would argue that the way God makes clear what he expects you to do, epic or not, is by giving you 
opportunities embedded in responsibility. So as you think through what it looks like in your life to do what's next and to do what's right and to not to not um, try to save the day or be overly epic, a key question is this. What are you responsible for? Are you responsible for ending racism in America? No. Are you responsible for not being a racist? Yes. One of those things God has put on your plate, one of them he has not. Are you responsible for ending poverty in the world? No. Are you responsible for being generous with what God's given you? Yes. It's clear God has put that responsibility on your plate. Are you responsible for the spiritual care of every person you know? No. Are you responsible for your own spiritual care, the spiritual care of your family? Yes. You're not responsible for single-handedly making your church healthy, making the people around you healthy. You're responsible for serving others as God gives you opportunity. So is Naomi responsible for taking care of herself and her daughter-in-law? Yes, she is. Is Ruth responsible for walking through open doors of opportunity like proposing to Boaz? I think yes. And this is an open door from the Lord, right? You remember chapter 2. The only reason this is happening is because it literally says in chapter 2, she just so happens to land in Boaz's field, right? So wisdom tells us something like that happens, and it's fair for Ruth to say, the Lord has brought this to me, which makes me responsible for acting on it, okay? And add, add on to that, that Ruth encourages her to do it. This is what I think this is what I think chapter 3 adds to our overall study of the book. So if what we've learned so far is God is absolutely sovereign in the affairs of his people. He alone carries out the plans of redemption for his people. The way he's chosen to do that is by using everyday faithfulness of normal people, not just Moses and Joshua and David and Abraham, normal people. You don't have to be a spiritual superstar. Everyday faithfulness of normal people looks like doing what's next and doing what's right. Today we add to that, doing what's next might mean taking responsibility for the opportunity God has put before you. That's what all three of the characters do throughout chapter three. It's interesting, right? Naomi has the plan, but really all three of these characters are having to react incredibly quickly to really important life decisions, right? Ruth has to decide whether she's going to do it, but if she's going to follow through, okay, she'll do it. There's a lot that could have happened there. A lot could have gone wrong. They're simply doing the next thing. So Boaz wakes up, and my sanctified imagination says, he sees a woman, and he says, do what's right. Just do do what the Lord has you to do in this situation, right? He finds out his root. He's, he finds out it's Ruth. What's the right thing to do? What's the, what has God put on my plate right now to do? And it happens to be something really exciting, which is taking care of her and hopefully maybe marrying her. But we'll see if that happens in the next chapter. We want to be useful to God. We want to be useful to God. More could be said about, about the balance and knowing the difference between the two, but we're out of time. So let's pray. We'll learn more next week in our final week. Father, this... Thank you for this rich and intriguing story. Gets better every chapter. No wonder the world of literature bows at the feet of scriptural writing. This story belongs to you. We're grateful to you that you've given it to us. And we trust now that what we are drawing out of this narrative is true. That the way 
the way I am dividing and communicating this passage in particular, chapter 3, is correct and is honorable. I pray again, what has come from you would stick. Conviction from the Spirit would stick. Encouragement would stick in our hearts and in our minds, and that you'd use it in our lives, and that uh, anything anything useless would be forgotten already. So help us to do what you have set before us to do, to stay focused on what's next and what's right. And I pray that you'd be with us next week as we see again that you use all these simple, mundane, boring things to, to make things happen that turn out to be pretty epic. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.